up, Sassnacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm discussing part two of my Droughtlander book club on The Sapphire Brooch by Katherine Lowry Logan. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you, you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 7 and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my live event on The Sapphire Brooch by Katherine Lowry Logan. So last week we talked about a bunch of different stuff, mostly Bram and Charlotte centric, trying to kind of get our feet wet with the characters, really try to understand who they are and what their story is over the course of the book, understand their motivations, kind of some of their character quirks. We also talked a lot about the plot and the history, talking about the end of the Civil War and kind of how that came about, the burning of Richmond and the Lincoln assassination and how that impacted our characters. This book is divided into four different parts. But whenever I was trying to decide how to break down this book club, because this was my first one that I had done in two parts, I was going to do it topically. And then I was kind of torn by that because I wanted to be able to talk about anything throughout the book. That's kind of how I roll. I look at things cohesively as a piece. So I wasn't really sure how I wanted to split it. And then one of my friends brought up a good point that this book is really two very different stories. The first two parts are separate in a lot of ways from parts three and four. I think that was really the impetus for me breaking it like I did. However, if I would have included the character analysis slash breakdown for all of our main characters in last week's episode, it probably would have been like a five hour episode. So I had to split it somewhere and that's why I'm including Jack and David in this week's. Jack is probably my favorite brooch character. (laughs) I know that's not a popular opinion, but I freaking love him. He is a little troublemaker, but he's my troublemaker. (laughs) And I love him. Don't get me wrong. I have been furious at him at times. And I'm not saying that he never does anything wrong. Like he's definitely made mistakes. And over the course of the series, he makes a lot of mistakes because he's kind of impulsive and he's adventurous. And that tends to get him in some hot water sometimes. And that's fine. You know, like that's what makes for a good story. But also when you're looking at it from above, you're like, oh my God, this is not going to end well. Like, are you freaking stupid? But it's easy for us to see that whenever we're looking at the whole plot, right? Lori says, Jack shows the most growth of any of the characters in the series throughout the series. I agree. And I was just talking to some friends about this a minute ago whenever I was on a Zoom call that I think that's what I love about Jack is that he has a huge arc. And we're not just talking over the course of a book. Jack's arc takes place over the course of the series. So I think that just makes him really fun to dive into as a character because he has so many 
layers that and he's so kind like he would bend over backwards for those he loves he's just amazing I could go on and on about him but I'm not going to (laughs) in the interest of time last week we were talking about Bram and kind of what makes him a character and I do think that there are a lot of similarities between Jack and Bram I think that's why they get along so well but I also think that that is why Jack is such a uh he's in the Bram McCabe fan club so to speak (laughs) he wants his sister to settle down with somebody like Bram because there are two peas in a pod and we really do see that over the course of this book in general is that even when things are really 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 bad they kind of lean on each other and they know that if they have the other person in their corner things are going to work out all right and I love that relationship between them that brotherly love I guess And Jack, his relationship with Charlotte is an extremely close one, but I almost feel like his relationship with Bram is an an extension of that relationship with Charlotte. Like Jack just instantly takes Bram under his wing and is like, this is how we roll. It's us against the world. It's, (laughs) It's a really good bromance. So I love to watch it play out. Having that parallel drawn, it's easy to see why Charlotte is at such a breaking point at the beginning of part three. After they come back from Washington, D.C., she's already mourning Bram. It's a really tough situation for her. And she knew what she was getting into when she went after him. She knew that she was going to fall in love with him. She knew that she wasn't going to be able to stay with him and that he likely wasn't going to come home with her. So that didn't really leave her with a lot of options, but she threw herself into a hook, line, and sinker because she really felt like it was the right thing to do. But... When she comes back, it's an intense period of mourning for her. And the only thing that really is that light in the darkness for her is her relationship with Jack. And he sees how much she's struggling and wants to be there for her and is making sure that she's okay, constantly checking in on her, even though he's super busy and he's back and forth between LA working on this movie script. She makes a comment that without Jack, there's no way that she could get through the loss of Bram. They've experienced this sort of lost before with their parents and so I don't think that it's anything new for them to experience loss but they've always been able to go through it together so when Jack goes missing and everything starts to unravel and he gets arrested and is tried as a conspirator and ends up being executed per the history books Charlotte kind of falls apart She could almost handle losing Bram because of Jack. But if she didn't have, like, who was going to help her through the loss of Jack if she didn't have Bram or Jack? She was all alone. And so I think having that fallback of the McLennas and especially how David steps up and is really there for her when neither Bram nor Jack can be, that's where we really start to get the building of this clan mentality, this extended family that is always there for each other no matter what. It's a really beautiful sentiment, and I think it's one of the things that draws me to this series over and over again, is this vast network of people. It's this community of friends and family that are there for each other no matter what, and they all have their strengths and their weaknesses, and they all bring something different to the table, but at the end of the day, when there's a problem, they come together and they solve it and they work together towards a common goal, and I really, really love that about this series. And that's this book is where we really start to see that take shape because of 
Jack getting in some deep shit and having to find his way out of it. I mean, we get Cullen coming to help. And then we've got Bram working behind the scenes in the 19th century. You've got David coming into the fold, Elia Meredith at home, and then of course Charlotte. So it's a small clan at this point in time, but it's still very much working together to solve that problem. Over the course of today, we're going to talk about some of the key players in the clan for this particular book. But first, we're going to kind of break down Jack a little bit because he is a major character and I think we probably see him not the most of any character but he's in the series as much as anybody else is other than um, I mean Elliot and Meredith are in every book and I think David and Kinsey are in every book but other than that besides those top four Jack is the next one so and I think Jack has probably been on the most time traveling missions of anybody for sure so it's just that adventurous spirit that kind of keeps him coming back for more and I think there's a mention in a later book about, you know, yeah, he may be getting older, but he would still go running down the street if an adventure came calling. Like, if he got a good lead on a story or whatever, like, he's still the same old Jack, even if he's matured and he's better at making decisions and kind of analyzing the issues. He still has that sense of adventure. So I really think that's cool. And one of Catherine's main inspirations for this character is the, um, I don't know if you guys ever saw the show Castle, which is about this author who kind of shadows this police officer or whatever, and they end up kind of becoming partners. And he uses this all as research or whatever for his books because he's a mystery slash thriller author. So I, whenever I heard that, I was like, yeah, that completely makes sense on a lot of levels, actually, (laughs) that this was the inspiration for Jack because there are a lot of like, Angela loves Jack. Looks like Bram is Gail's go-to. I was talking about how Jack would just take off and follow a lead, follow a story at all costs. And I think we see the reckless side of that behavior 100%, but also we can turn that behavior around and see how it's really dedication to a cause because whenever Bram gets arrested earlier in the book and is thrown in Castle Thunder, Charlotte's like, yeah, I love him too, but should we really be going to Richmond? Like, this seems really dangerous. And he says, you once described me as a hound dog on the scent of a story. You probably got it right, sis, but there's one thing I know for sure. I will see this through with or without you. So yes, it can be construed as reckless behavior that he's willing to take these chances, but at the same time, he always does it with a good heart, like the greatest of intentions. And you know, good intentions pave the path to hell, right? Like (laughs) we all know how that goes. And I don't think that is any different for Jack, to be honest. He definitely makes some questionable decisions, but at the end of the day, I don't ever think that he thinks it's going to go south. I mean, I guess a lot of people who make bad decisions don't ever think that their their decisions are going to have any negative repercussions, but he really does try to do the right thing a lot of the times. And I think that the same can be said of why he goes back for his notebook in part three after they get back. That notebook has a lot of content that if it ever gets out, that has massive repercussions, okay? It's going to affect the stock market like no tomorrow. People are going to know what happens for the next hundred years of history. And so to kind of think about it from Jack's perspective, it's not just that it's months and months of research that's down the drain, but it's also they went back to the 1870s 
1960s to try to prevent Bram from changing the future. If somebody finds this journal that Jack has, all of their work is going to be for naught. The future is still going to end up being impacted. So that's why he decides to go back. And while that can be taken in a negative way, like, oh my God, why would he do that? Also, you have to realize that I don't think he had any clue that he would be implicated in the trial of the conspirators. First off, while they have a pretty good idea that history can be changed, there's no way of knowing up until this point how much history can be changed. If you go back to the past knowing what happens, you have a certain sense of security in that fact. Like, if you go back to 1864 and you know who the Lincoln conspiracy people are, you're automatically going to assume that you're not going to be part of that. I don't think it ever crossed Jack's mind that he could be implicated in this or that he would be. Like, why would anybody implicate him in it? He clearly had nothing to do with it because he didn't count on Gordon Henley being a jackass. That's why. (laughs) But that's beside the point. Anyway, so I think he really just planned a quick in and out. He just wanted to get his journal and come right back. And it didn't work out that way. Yeah, you kind of have to take Jack's actions with a grain of salt because he just gets drawn into these situations where he's a magnet for trouble. For anything bad that can happen, it's going to happen to Jack. Like you can almost guarantee it. Signed, sealed, delivered, Jack Mallory is going to get in trouble somehow, some way. And even Charlotte mentions that he was due for a big one. She's talking about how the last time that he got in trouble was when he was shadowing like a biker gang for research for his book and ended up getting arrested as a, an accessory to murder or something like that. And obviously the charges were all dropped and stuff. They realized that he wasn't involved, but that's the kind of thing that happens to Jack. And so that was several years ago. Now this is going to happen. And so... Charlotte knows that it's only a matter of time. She really does. And I think that's why she worries about him so much because she is such a safe person. Like she always makes the safe decision. And I think that there are two sides of the coin in that way. Like they are very, very similar, but also very, very different in how they approach life. I think that makes them good for each other because when Charlotte needs a good kick in the ass he's there to give it to her but when Jack needs a little bit of restraint she's there to hold him back as well so I really love their relationship I know I talked about it a little bit last week there's just something so unique about the fact that they lost their parents so young and they really did have to lean on each other as they grew up and they had a lot of impact on each other their approach to life and I think part of what makes Charlotte so careful is that she sees how much trouble Jack has got into. Part of what makes Jack so adventurous is that he sees how much of a sheltered life Charlotte is living, like holed up in her hospital, helping her patients and not taking chances on love and all of that, like they act as a foil to each other in a lot of ways. One thing that I love about Jack is the fact that he does kind of serve as her parental figure and they lost their dad a lot younger than they lost their mom. But their mom, you also get the feeling that she was around, but she wasn't really invested in them. Like she lost a lot of her zest for life when her husband died. And so even though their mom was around and was a provider, she still wasn't really a 
full-on support system, I guess, if you want to call it that way. And so they had her, but they had each other. And I think we really see that in their relationship, that they are so well-connected and bonded. And they're almost like twins. You could totally get that vibe. Like, yeah, you see the older protective brother vibe that Jack puts out there. And he definitely kind of steps in. And one situation that I'm thinking of in particular was when Bram and Jack are talking about how Charlotte is kind of (laughs) overindulgent with her job. She just kind of buries herself in her work. And Bram makes a comment that it seems that Jack doesn't really approve of that kind of lifestyle. And Jack says, I don't have a problem with her job. I have a problem with her believing she doesn't need anything else in her life. I know I talked a little bit last week about how Ken is a person that can look at Charlotte and say, look, you need a little bit more work-life balance. Jack is also a person that steps up to the plate in that respect and is saying, hey, you work too much. Like, you need a life outside of work. He recognizes that for the problem that it is, and he's her biggest advocate for finding other things to be passionate about. I think it's why he is so supportive of her being a reenactor, because it's one of the few times that she actually gets out there in the world and tries something new and has a sense of camaraderie with other people. And so I think that he really is supportive of that in a lot of ways. Then whenever Bram comes into the picture, he just gets so excited. He's like, oh my God, she's finally found somebody that meets all of the requirements on her list. And he's freaking amazing. And I love him. And we could totally have this great bromance. And it's going to be great. <laughs> I think he has all these like illusions of grandeur about having the perfect brother-in-law. And that him and Charlotte are just so fantastic together. But there's one small problem. He's from the night. 19th century. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> I think I was totally sold on the Jack and Bram relationship as a whole. One of the very first scenes that they have, I think it's after the police leave from questioning Bram when he's brought back to the future and he's recovering from his gunshot wound and all of that. Jack like watches the police leave and then he turns to Bram and he says, okay, nobody's listening but me and I want the truth. If you're married and spent the night with my sister and then your wife showed up and shot you, I want to know, so spill it. (laughs) And I really see Jack as kind of this really tall, he can be like physically imposing if he wanted to be type person, but he's very disarming and has this charming personality. Like he can give you this this smile and has a twinkle in his eye and he all of a sudden like makes you forget any reservations that you have about the situation like he's one of those people a very good political type like what you would think of as a politician is kind of what I think of Jack as and I mean he comes from a family of politicians so I guess that doesn't really surprise me but I think deep down he's probably a little more tender-hearted than most politicians and I think that's why he decided to become a writer instead of continue with his career as a lawyer because he was deeper than that. Like, he cares more than that. It was probably really hard for him to have a career like that. Like, I talked last week about how much of a bleeding heart Charlotte was, and I think that Jack tends to be that way as well, but just in different ways.
plays. They show it in different ways. Jack's a writer. He's a creative mind. He uses his writing as an outlet for those kinds of emotions. Charlotte uses her work as an outlet for those feelings. So you can see the similarities in these siblings, and it's really fun to kind of break it down and see how these same characteristics are put into these characters, but they come out in different ways based on their life experiences. I talked about the first scene that really stood out to me that was a Jack and Bram moment. The second scene that really caught me, like knife in the heart caught me. And I'm so desperate to know what actually happened here. (laughs) But it's one of those things that I'm just gonna chalk up to being one of the great mysteries of the Celtic Brooch series. After President Lincoln is assassinated and Bram is deep down in his hole of depression, like in the black hole, contemplating suicide, drinking way too much, holed up in his room with all the doors locked, smoking cigars, and Jack is the only person that could get through to him. We see this conversation from outside. Charlotte mentions that it was a lot of yelling at first. Then as Bram started to sober up, the voices got softer and that eventually she kind of walks past the room and she sees them huddled together by the fire and they're chuckling to each other. And it's a very brotherly conversation conversation that's happening and we never know what takes place in that conversation but she has the mental dialogue of Jack got through to him in a way that I couldn't. So we really do see how Jack and Bram are two peas in a pod for lack of a better term and I really really want to know what was said in that conversation. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it was Bram getting things off of his chest about his guilt, almost like survivor's guilt, right? It's a really hard thing to process because you don't know why you're still here and the person that you loved is not. And there's also that lack of responsibility, like it was Bram's job to protect Lincoln and he didn't do that. And that was his purpose in life in a lot of respects. So I'm sure that that was also weighing on Bram. But I think that probably something that was talked about a lot was a sense of loss and talking through their grief together. Jack has been through extreme loss before and so I'm sure that it was a lot of counseling Bram on this, that, or the other and also kind of talking about Charlotte. I'm sure Charlotte came into it a lot as well because they both deeply love her and that's a a ginormous bonding point for them and we see that time and time again them coming together over that part of their relationship, their love for for Charlotte. That was one like uh, point for me in this book. I just wanted to know so bad. I wanted to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. So that's Jack in a nutshell. And the reason that I saved him for this portion of the Sapphire Brooch conversation is because I feel like the back half of the Sapphire Brooch, even though he's not in it as a character a lot, it's about him, the second half of the Sapphire Brooch. So I wanted to make sure that he was fresh in our minds as we continue on down the path. One thing that's really important about Jack, and I forgot to put it in my notes, but that I want to make sure that we're reiterating here, is that in his quest to find deeper meaning in his life and develop himself emotionally, he spent time with monks at a monastery for like a year, 18 months, something like that, a pretty long period of time. And the monks in the monastery, they don't talk. It's really a place of great reflection, self-meditation, 
introspection, if you were. While he was at the monastery, he learned how to kind of go into trance, close his eyes, and mentally go to a place that is a safe space where you can be with yourself wherever you want to be and just kind of transport yourself there and meditate and reflect on what's going on in the world around you or completely remove yourself from that space altogether and create another world where you can remove yourself from all the problems in front of you. And so that fact about Jack is extremely important when we look at how he gets through the trial and this ghastly torture that the prisoners had to undergo in the form of sensory deprivation. They would have cotton pads placed over their ears and eyes and then canvas hoods placed over and tied into place to prevent them from talking to each other, talking to other people. I honestly don't know how any of these people kept from going crazy because to completely be blocked out from the world for weeks to months and the only time that you have any interaction with the outside world is when you're on trial for murder. How do you handle that? I don't know that I could. And I think the only way that Jack was able to was by going to this place in his head, going into a meditative trance and kind of just like he tells Charlotte, he spent hours sitting by the river reading in his head. If he hadn't been able to do that, he would have lost his mind. The human brain can't function without some sort of senses. You can be deaf, but to be deaf and blind, to just be existing in the darkness for an indeterminable amount of time, you don't know how much time has passed because you're just in the darkness all the time and you're either sleeping or you're awake, but you can only sleep so much, so... Yeah, it's just crazy. And I get why Charlotte was having such a hard time knowing that that was happening because she has a really strong sense of justice, but also as a medical professional, she knows what the brain goes through after being cornered for so long. And just, you can only be stuck with yourself for so long before you kind of start to lose your marbles, I think. I mean, think about it. If all you had was yourself for company... (laughs) Ooh, yeah, I don't know that I can maintain my sanity. <laughs> Angela says, it's why your other senses strengthen when you lose one. Right, to make up for that deficit. But if your sense of hearing and your sense of sight are both gone, what are you left with? Touch, smell, and taste. And I'm sure they weren't tasting anything super great. <laughs> I'm sure they weren't smelling anything super great in a, a military prison. So yeah, I mean, it was just a horrendous experience on all sides. I can understand why that was one of Charlotte's biggest priorities was getting the hoods removed because it is inhumane treatment. The last thing that she wanted was to get Jack free, but then to have him not be Jack anymore. Like that would almost be as bad as him being executed. So we're going to move on from Jack and we're going to talk about the villain of the story. Colonel Gordon Henley, this snake drives me insane. (laughs) I don't know personally how Charlotte was able to put up with him for so long. And I think that she did it because she was, she thought she was getting something out of it. In the end, it didn't end up being that way. He knew where Bram was the entire flipping time and just didn't say anything to her. And I think that her first and biggest mistake was 
letting him walk into her life. Like if she had not opened the door for him, I don't think that we would have been dealing with most of what happens later in the book. He's one of those people that you give him an inch, he takes a mile and he gets an insane amount of possessiveness about him. He's extremely jealous. He's a drug abuser. So his behavior is erratic and unpredictable, which makes him violent and extremely dangerous. When you get in a situation where we know that the man is abusive anyway, Bram talks about how Henley has a reputation for beating up on the prostitutes in the local brothel so much to the point that the madam has had him removed from her establishment and banned from coming back. We know that he's a bad guy and Bram knows this about him as well. But I think Bram at that point is trying so hard to keep himself away from Charlotte. He's so pissed at her from coming back. He doesn't want to be pulled into the brooch craziness. He just wants to live his life and doesn't want to have to deal with the whole soulmate hoopla that's sure to ensue. So he's mad at Charlotte for coming back and he doesn't want to get involved in whatever's happening. But he knows that if she's involved with Henley, nothing good is going to happen as a result of that. Gordon already hates Bram. This is history that got started way before Jack and Charlotte came into the picture. Henley was passed over for the special agent to the president that Bram was given. And he resents Bram for that because if Henley had been given the job that Bram got, he probably wouldn't have been at the Battle of Cedar Creek. He wouldn't have got shot in the back. He wouldn't be living with this chronic pain that he has. And in his mind, his life would have been a hell of a lot better if Bram McCabe had never come into it, okay? And so he already has it out for Bram. Then finding out that the woman that he is after and trying to persuade to marry him is actually involved with Bram, that's another tick against this group that he's harboring more and more resentment towards. Then you get Jack, Charlotte's brother, who refuses to have any say in how Charlotte proceeds with her life, and he doesn't exert any control over his sister. This is just not how Henley is thinking things should be done, right? And he resents Jack for that, on top of the fact that Jack just likes to poke and prod Henley wherever he can and make him feel inadequate as a man because Jack has such a magnetic quality about him. Women just flock to him. And so I think he enjoys making Henley feel less than desirable whenever he's in Jack's shadow. So there's a lot of things happening with Henley. And as the story progresses, his resentment and his anger are just growing and growing and growing and growing. So that when Charlotte flat out refuses him, And it's the straw that broke the camel's back. And from that point on, he has no compunction about making their lives a living hell. He plans this out and wants to make sure that these people get their due for what they've cost him. And I love that having the knowledge that they have about his addiction and kind of his gambling problems and all of this, they end up turning all of that against him to goad him into revealing his true nature to everybody in the end. We've got a house full of chess players whenever everybody comes to the rescue for Jack. Between Cullen, Bram, David, and Gaylord, Jack was going to get free. Whether they had to forcibly remove him from that prison or get him off legally, they were going to get him out. And I think Jack had complete confidence in that. 
Charlotte was trying to have confidence in that, but Henley didn't know what shitstorm he was unleashing on himself. <laughs> Let's put it that way. It's one of those things where when you reread it, you can see all the pieces falling into place as far as Henley manipulating the situation and framing Jack, but I sure as hell didn't see it coming the first time I read it. I don't know how you guys feel about that, whether you saw it coming or not. I mean, it made sense when we found out that it was him. Yeah, Liz says he's vindictive. He's very vindictive. He thinks that everything that's done to him is a wrong done to him, I feel like, and that that needs to be righted. And he just zeroes in on that and will not let it go. Like once he locks his jaw, watch out, it's going to get nasty. Where it kind of all really falls into place. I mean, Bram knows that he's the bad guy, right? And he's warned Charlotte about it. Whenever Henley comes to the house in part two and Charlotte basically tells him, go fly a kite, we're done. I'm not doing this anymore. He gets very rough with her. He's verbally abused. Abusive. He's physically abusive and he's threatening her left and right. He scratches her and slaps her across the face, knocks her silly. They eventually, between her and Edward, get him out of the house. And Charlotte's like, he's not welcome. Do not let him back in this house. Do what you got to do. But please don't tell Bram and Jack. Like, Edward was not going to tell Bram and Jack. I'm sorry. <laughs> Bram and Jack had every right to know, and I kind of wish that they had gone and kicked his ass right then and there because that would have saved him both a lot of trouble, I think. Nevertheless, when Bram finds out that Henley laid hands on Charlotte, he says, stay away from the bastard. If he hits you again, he'll inflict serious damage and don't give him the opportunity. So this is 200, 300 pages before Charlotte is abducted by Henley after Jack is arrested. So Bram knows that this is a potential issue. And I don't think he ever really thought that he would go so far as to kidnap her, beat her to a pulp and try to rape her. It's just kind of crazy that I'm pretty sure by the time the trial rolls around, Henley's feeling pretty good about himself. I mean, he's got Jack in prison on conspiracy to assassinate the president. He's got Charlotte locked up in a root cellar, beaten within an inch of her life. And he's got Bram cornered because Bram has to choose between Jack and Charlotte and Henley knows that one way or the other, this this decision is going to destroy Bram. He's either going to have to give up defending Jack to go save Charlotte or he's going to have to give up Charlotte to defend Jack and get him off. Bram's going to be destroyed either way. It's just a bonus that in the process, Jack, who's made him feel inferior, is getting his due and Charlotte, who metaphorically kicked him in the balls and then kicked his ass to the curb, <laughs> is getting hers as well. So I think that before everybody starts putting the pieces together and formulating this plan, he's feeling pretty confident about what he's got going on. I think that if we had taken one person out of the dream team, as I refer to them, this may have had a very different result. When you look at how they all work together, David and Gaylord are two freaking peas in a pod. They're so cute <laughs> how they work together and they wheedle Henley. They dilute his laudanum. They get him in a bunch of gambling debt. 
They kind of keep him on edge so that he's not thinking and processing things clearly. They're also keeping an eye on him and what his plans are, where he's frequenting, the people he's talking to. They are keeping an eye on everything and trying to also gather witnesses for Jack's defense and whatever. And then you've got Cullen and Bram, who are two of the smartest characters in the series. Like, they are definitely the best chess players on the board, as Catherine refers to them later in the series. And I don't think that there is anybody else in this series that could have manipulated the system, manipulated the press, and covered all the bases that they did, plus doing an excellent job of defending him in court enough to get Jack off. But if David and Gaylord hadn't been prodding Henley on the other end, I don't know that they would have gotten that irrefutable proof that Jack was innocent to get him off. So I really think that if you take one domino out of the line, it kind of would have ruined the whole cascade effect. In all seriousness, it really was kind of perfection in a lot of ways that they all kind of ganged together and and figured stuff out. Ellen says, agree, Charlotte really let a snake into her life. Shudder. Ugh. And you get that vibe right from the get-go. Like, you know this guy is bad news. Because literally, the first time Charlotte meets him, it says his cognac-colored eyes were fixed on her with an unblinking chill. That's the first time that she meets him. She knows that something is off about him from the very beginning, and yet she still opens the door and lets him in, and then lets him get attached to her like a fucking leech. He's not going anywhere. He's possessive. He's overbearing. Jack describes him as a real Jekyll and Hyde. And I think that that is probably the closest that we can come to an accurate description of Gordon Henley. And yeah, I think that his addiction to pain medication and his constant living in pain exacerbates the situation. But that's not something that you just, like, you develop that personality out of chronic pain. That's not how chronic pain works. Like, you have to have that kind of personality anyway. It may embolden that side of you. Like, it may bring it closer to to the surface, but at the end of the day, it doesn't make you a vindictive, cold-hearted person. And I love that when Bram finds out that Henley is involved, he's like, if Henley's done all of this to get even with me, I'll stick a knife in his bloody black heart. And I was like, I really kind of wish we could have seen that. And you know, Bram can't cold-heartedly kill anybody. Like, if he was gonna cold-heartedly kill somebody, he would have killed Booth. We know that Bram is not that kind of person and that's what we love about him, but at the same time, I could have got on board with that. (laughs) I really, really could have. Lori said she did not see this part of the story coming. I mean, I definitely did not see Jack going back in time, getting arrested for conspiracy to assassinate the president and being hung. I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a minute. What? (laughs) Okay. All right. Angela says, the rats, they freak me out. I would have been mentally deranged in her position in that cellar. I don't know how she did it, to be honest. Like, she hates rats. I hate rats. I hate mice. I hate anything like that. Any sort of rodent, I'm out. I'm out so hard. (laughs) It is not even a question. Having rats literally eating you, and this is something that both Bram and Charlotte deal with in this book. So if I was not already completely gross 
grossed out by rats? Bet your ass I am now. Like, I have PTSD from reading those scenes. Ooh, gross. No, thank you. I loved that David is really Charlotte's protector in this situation. I think it causes not tension, but resentment between David and Bram, but they can join together in this mutual cause to save Charlotte. And that when we get back to the 21st century and Charlotte is kind of reliving that time in her cell and how horrifying that was to her, David looks her in the face and he says, I killed them all, Charlie. There were four and they'll never crawl on you again. Like he looks at her straight in the face and says, I killed them and they're not going to hurt you anymore. I'm like, yes, that's why we love David because He's not afraid to go there to the places that I don't think Bram is afraid to go there, but his moral code won't allow him to go there. And the fact that David allowed himself to go the extra step, you just know that he would kill if he had to. And I think that Bram would, but he'd have more reservations about it. Like it would bother him more later. When David makes a decision, and I think this is just him as an operator, when he makes a decision, he has no more remorse about it. And that's one thing that kind of when Elliot and Meredith are talking and Meredith's like, do you think David's okay? You know, and Elliot's like, trust me, if he says he's okay, he's okay. You should never have a cause to doubt David McBain's word. He's not cold. That's not what I'm saying. He's a big teddy bear and he loves and protects those that are closest to him. But he definitely is able to make executive decisions that others would hesitate at and have no regrets about the decisions that he makes. Connie says, oh no, didn't see Jack being hung and Charlotte going back for him. Didn't see that coming. Kathy, rats come out when horses are sleeping and chew on their hooves. So gross. I could have gone without knowing that. (laughs) I really could have. Could have gone without knowing that. (laughs) Whenever we look at Charlotte's abduction, we have to take note of her reaction to that abduction. I mean, yeah, we see the whole attack portion of it and her actually being taken and all of that. But she's disoriented and not quite with it. But the one thing that she holds on to throughout all of that is she's maintaining the idea that Jack has to come first. She sees what Henley's up to. She knows that he's trying to put Bram between her and Jack so that he has to choose one or the other. And she's praying against all odds that he's going to pick Jack, that he's going to look at what Charlotte would want and get Jack free. Everybody, I think, knows knows this, that this needs to be the priority. Jack has to get free and that's what Charlotte would want. And if they had come for Charlotte and sacrificed Jack, that may have been what Jack wanted, but it sure as hell not what Charlotte wanted. So again, we get that self-sacrificing nature between the siblings. We get the tug of war that Bram is feeling. It's a super intense moment in the story, but through all of that, Charlotte is having confidence that if Bram will just stick with the plan and get Jack free, David will find her. She has absolute confidence in the fact that David will find her. David will protect her. David will do that work. Bram has to focus on Jack. Henley just has no freaking clue what hornet's nest he stepped into when he poked the bear and David McBain put it that way. Like, don't you touch his Charlie, okay? I love the relationship that David and Charlotte have. It breaks Bram 
Sam's heart a little bit when he hears Charlotte whisper, where are you, David? And we know what Charlotte is thinking in that moment, that she wants David to find her because she doesn't want Bram to find her because she wants Bram to be in court defending Jack. She's completely locked out from the outside world. She has no idea how much time has passed, what's happening, if it's been days, hours, weeks, minutes, whatever. So she's extremely disoriented and we're kind of the the fun and creative part about her being in this position is that we start to understand kind of what Jack goes through and what the conspirators go through being in that sense of sensory deprivation because we don't get their POVs but we get Charlotte's POV and her sense of sensory deprivation is impacting her decision making along with the fact that she's been beaten and bruised and she's probably got a concussion. She's disoriented anyway but then to kind of get the fact that she's closed off from the outside world and we're getting the parallels between the siblings by understanding what Charlotte is going through we can begin to understand what Jack is going through as well which I thought was kind of cool. So here's where we get into the trial. I asked Catherine, I said, the Civil War is an intensely complex setting. How long did the research portion of Sapphire take? And how did you ever choose which tidbits to include? And she said, the historical events were dictated by the date Charlotte and then Charlotte and Jack arrived in the past. Since they were going back to stop Bram, they arrived close to the assassination. I wanted to focus on the end of the war, the assassination, and the trial. So she knew that it had to be kind of at the end of the Civil War, and that's where she started. And then she kind of just started researching and figuring out what little pieces that she wanted to utilize along the way, because there was a lot going on at the end of the Civil War. And I just had no freaking idea. So to have to sift through that, I guess, is kind of mind boggling. When we look at not only the end of the war and everything that was happening with the fall of Richmond and some of the battles that were happening and taking place, we also get Lincoln's assassination and the trial, which is something that she really wanted to focus on. When we look at the trial of the conspirators, I honestly... and. This is just me personally. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but this is my take on it. The trial of the conspirators was one of the darkest moments in American history. It's a moment where our justice system kind of just dissolved. We weren't giving due process. There was no presumption of innocence, no jury of their peers, no appeals system. It was literally a legal firing squad. They were put in a room these people. So we've got, this is this is the actual conspiracy. And then obviously Jack was kind of tossed in. Harold, Powell, Atzerat, Mary Surratt, Samuel Mudd, Michael O'Laughlin, and Samuel Arnold, and Edmund Spangler. All of these people were put on trial for conspiracy to assassinate the president. Now, Harold Powell, Atzerat, and Mary Surratt, they were all hanged. Mudd, O'Laughlin, and Arnold were sentenced to life in prison, and Spangler only received six years of incarceration. Mary Seurat is a particularly interesting portion of the conspiracy story. I mean, yeah, there was circumstantial evidence. There was circumstantial evidence for all of these people, but only hard evidence for a couple of people. Like Lewis Powell. Yeah, there were a lot of witnesses to what he did. He's the one that attempted to assassinate Secretary Seward. So obviously there was hard evidence against him. But other than that, there were only a couple of them that in today's court, like if we took that 
case and tried it in today's court without the mania of post-assassination and wanting justice for what happened and all of that. If we took the emotion out of it and we literally just presented the facts of the case to a jury that wasn't emotional, didn't have any attachment, and was actually a jury of their peers instead of a military tribunal, a lot of these people, their cases would not have held water. Because Mary Surratt's a prime example. She owned a boarding house and some of the conspirators met there a couple of times. That was it. That was pretty much the sum total of the case against Mary Surratt. And she was hung as a conspirator. I mean, there are theories that she was put on trial because her son, John, who was actually involved in the conspiracy, they think he was. There are theories that she was tried to kind of draw him out of the woodwork, but he never came forward and she was executed. So that was kind of the theory. Honestly, like like Samuel Mudd, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. You know what his crime was? He fixed Booth's broken leg. He didn't know who he was. And he got sentenced to life imprisonment. So some of these cases, there's a really cool website and I shared it in the event that we're currently sitting in while I do this live. It is put on by Ford's Theater. It kind of is a really cool thing because you can look at each of the conspirators that were tried, the evidence presented against them, and what actually happened in the trial or whatever. And you can make your own decisions on whether you think that that person was guilty or not. Yeah, Catherine says they were railroaded. Absolutely. There were no rules in this trial. They set the rules as they went. And if their lawyers got even a whiff of like the right direction to go, they would just change tactics. It was insane. It was so insane. Like I said, one of the darkest parts of this entire country's history. It makes me sick to think that our justice system dissolved this much, that innocent people were hung for something that they didn't do. And I know... I know this isn't the first time that this has happened, but it was a very public thing. Like the world was watching. And I know that there was a lot of pressure on these generals in this military tribunal to seek retribution for what happened. And a lot of them were seeking a sense of personal justice for mistakes that they made over the course of the war. And I think that when we get Jack's objections to the members of the military commission, while he's right, and those are 100% reasonable objections in a court that's not intent on seeing you hung for something you didn't do, he basically sealed his fate. Like I said before, Jack is a politician. Jack is very disarming. He's very intelligent. He's a lawyer. He knows how these things work. And I think that he could have made a very good impression on these guys and probably could have helped his case a little bit. And that's probably what Bram and Cullen were thinking as well. And then the moment that he stood up and said, these guys aren't fit to be my judge, he was host. They were like, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> like, what the frick? I'm sure they were beyond themselves. I would be. Imagine trying to defend somebody who basically just sealed their own fate by opening his mouth. And, you know, when Charlotte makes the comment, she's like, Jack's probably suffering more from the injustice of it all than anything else. I think that's kind of when he makes that comment. That's why. <laughs> that's where we really see that coming out in spades. So the way that the trial proceeds, I guess, Bram is in a particularly tenuous position because he's touted as a war hero. He was promoted to colonel because of his actions trying to save Secretary Seward. He is really risking his career and his reputation on defending Jack. I don't know necessarily that that 
bothers Bram, like that portion of it, I think he would do it all again in a heartbeat because he knows that Jack is innocent and he would lay his life on the line for Jack. That is made perfectly plain. Like, I don't think that he regrets his decision and I don't think that any amount of his superiors leaning into him and saying, bro, get out while you're ahead. This is a terrible idea. That's not going to change his mind. But it doesn't mean that it's not hard hearing that, especially when Grant says to him, I admire everything that you've done during this war but you're kind of attaching your horse to the wrong cart. Like, get out now. He says, I've never known you to be wrong about anything. But at the same time, like, I think Grant realizes just as much as Bram does that there is no changing the course of this. They already have their minds made up. And by attaching yourself to someone who is going to go down as involved in the assassination of President Lincoln, that's something that you're going to live with for the rest of your life if this goes south. And it's likely to go south. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's hard to watch Bram go through that because we know everything that Bram has sacrificed and how much Bram loved President Lincoln. If Jack doesn't get off like if they don't succeed, that's something that is it's going to be a shadow across his entire career, basically. So Bram is sacrificing a lot, perhaps more than anybody else. But he makes the comment to Charlotte. He says, I'll bring him home or I'll die trying because he's not about to watch his friend be murdered, essentially. Like he already watched one friend die. You really think he's about to let another friend die? Absolutely freaking not. And then when we find out that Henley's just even more of a weasel than we ever could have predicted and that he's created false witnesses and framed Jack and perjured himself on the stand in the process. <clears throat> the sense of injustice of it all. I just hate it. <laughs> I hate it so much. And I guess you don't ever realize like how much trust you put in your legal system until you like read something like this and it just grabs your heart and squeezes and it just makes your stomach turn sour. I just can't. It makes me sick <laughs> watching this. And yeah, I mean, I had the, the greatest moment moment of triumph watching them walk away with the victory on this one, but holy crap. Whenever I was reading the Ruby brooch and was kind of getting a vibe for Bram and Cullen's relationship through all of this. All I wanted in life was to see them be lawyers together because I just had the best feeling about this. Like, I was like, if we ever get to see this, it is going to be fan-freaking-tastic. <laughs> like, so awesome. I'm so excited and I really hope we get to see it. Obviously, we didn't see it in the Ruby brooch and then we had a contemporary romance in The Last McClenna and then it wasn't looking like we were going to get that in Bram's story and then we get to this section when David and Charlotte go back and they arrive at McClenna Farm. Guess who's there waiting for them? Cullen. Oh, here we freaking go, man. I am so excited. I'm here for this. Angela said you could just picture Bram and Cullen mentally banging their heads against the virtual wall. Oh my god, yes. They're like, why are you still talking? Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up, Jack. For sure. Angela brought up a question earlier at the beginning. Why was Bram not involved in the history of Jack's trial? Yet he was involved when she went back, but in the history, it was some dopey lawyer. Why did history not show Bram involved at all? I was confused about this as well. So I asked Catherine, like, what's going on with it? And she mentioned, didn't Bram call Cullen to Washington to help defend Jack? Well, yeah, he did. But she also mentioned that Bram was out hunting the Confederate gold at the time. He was 
not in Washington in the original annals of history. He was somewhere else. This is kind of where we get into the time travel portion of it. One thing that you have to look at whenever you're looking at the time travel lore of the Celtic Brooch series. And it, I guess this made more sense to me as I was kind of talking it through with Catherine because we had a, a lengthy conversation about this. How I was looking at it in the grand scheme of things was as just a time loop, right? Like you have your timeline here and then you can hop here and change this which changes all of this back here. And then you can hop here and it changes it again. I was kind of looking at it like that. But whenever she is writing, looked at it as linear. In the story, when Jack goes back, yes, it impacts the future. But it's also happening at the same time. They're parallel timelines. So as things are changing in Jack's story, things are changing in Charlotte's story. So they're getting like further apart almost. The version of history that that Charlotte and David and Elliot are researching and getting all the deets on and stuff, that version of history that they're researching is happening at the exact same time so that they couldn't find any record of Bram being involved in the trial because Bram didn't know about it yet, if that makes sense. And so Bram wasn't involved in it yet because he was searching for the Confederate gold, but he sent word to Cullen that he needed to get to Washington ASAP because Bram didn't know when he was going to be able to get back. So Cullen is on his way to Washington, but they're still not representing Jack yet. So history still records some dopey, whatever you called him, person that doesn't know what he's doing to represent Jack. So that by the time Charlotte and David and all of them get back to 1864 and all of the events that happen in the timeline are happening, by the time that all happens, when Elliot and Meredith look at the history book because they're back in the 21st century, that's what they're going to read happened. That Bram McCabe and Cullen Montgomery represented Jack Mallory in the assassination of the president. So it's all happening in parallel timeline and then they're jumping back and forth between the two lines. So I know that's probably really confusing and I'm sorry if I just confused people even more, but that is why history did not record Bram being Jack's lawyer initially because it hadn't happened yet. Connie said, okay, it makes sense. Weirdly, (laughs) I was like, okay, all right. Well, at least it made sense for somebody because I was starting to confuse myself. Yes, it was in motion, but hadn't happened yet. You have to look at them happening at the exact same time, not set in motion. At the moment that Charlotte and David did their research, Bram was still in Richmond or wherever the hell he was looking for the Confederate gold. So it hadn't happened yet. History had not been changed to that degree yet when they were doing their research. So you just have to look at it that way. In the grand scheme of the time travel of this all, at a certain point, point you have to suspend disbelief and just kind of take it with a grain of salt that that's what it is there is a certain amount of clarification that can happen but also if you dig into it too deep it's not going to make sense no matter how I explain it or how Catherine explains it at some point you just kind of have to be like okay I'm 95% there and we'll leave it at that I know it's still confusing. And to a certain extent, it's always going to be confusing. I think that part of what makes it that way is that we have two protagonists, technically three sets of protagonists, that have different memories of what happens. You're always going to have that back and forth 
Jack is the only person that will ever remember a time when Jack Mallory was not on the list of conspirators that will remember a time when he and his sister both lived at Mallory Plantation and their parents were politicians slash lawyers. So they have common memories because they shared time in the past together, but you can take the memories with you when you travel. If you're in the future when the future changes, those are the memories that you're stuck with. So that's kind of what happened to Charlotte in that respect. There's a quote when Elliot's trying to explain it that I think relatively does clarify quite a few things. So I'll read that to you guys. He says, look at it this way. There is a memorial to Abraham Lincoln in Washington, D.C. You know it. I know it. Now say you go back in time and Bram stops the assassination. Lincoln continues his term in office and then retires to Illinois. When you come back to the 21st century, the Lincoln Memorial will no longer exist. You'll remember it was once there because it was your memory when you went back in time. But if Bram changes history, Lincoln will lose his immortality and the memorial will never be built. And you and Jack will be the only people who will ever know it was once there. So you're coming from a time to the the 19th century. History changes while you're there and you go back to your time, but it's a different world than the one that you originally left because of everything that happened while you were in the 19th century. That's kind of where the memories change. And the same is true of what happens with Jack and Charlotte. The difference is they were in different timelines when history changed. We're talking about the parallel timelines again. So they were in different spots when their memories changed. So that's why they have different memories. I think what's confusing for people is when you look at it in a linear fashion over the course of the whole book, That's kind of the timeline that Catherine was working off of. So when we get these small changes that happen or history that's recorded, it's because you have to look at them happening at the same time. So whenever we get to Jack disappearing, which is kind of the big one, that's why we get the night and day difference between Charlotte. She goes to bed and she's Charlotte Mallory, who grew up on Mallory Plantation. Jack leaves. She wakes up the next day and everything is completely different. And it's because that one decision that Jack made, he made it right then. So that's when Charlotte's life changed. It's basically all just whenever decisions are made is whenever it impacts people down the line, regardless of what timeline it happens in. So like I said, a certain level of suspended disbelief has to occur. I feel like the more I talk about it, the more it makes sense, but maybe it's just me talking myself into it. (laughs) I don't know. But nevertheless, Catherine did say, look, I never meant for it to be dissected. And yeah, if you look at it too deep, it probably doesn't make sense. But that was kind of her thinking on it whenever she created it the way that she did. Alrighty, let's talk about Cullen a little bit. This is the first time that we get Cullen from a different perspective than Kit's. And I think that it's very interesting to kind of understand him as a character, I guess. This is how she describes him. She says, his powerful presence wasn't just because of the Kennedy look. It was charisma. She couldn't explain it or define it, but it oozed from his pores. She wasn't easily impressed by looks, fame, fortune, or celebrity status, but Cullen certainly got her attention. You know, whenever we first met Cullen, there was this instantaneous thing that Kit zoomed in on. He's very magnetic. And we saw that all through the ruby brooch that people just flock to him. He's a natural leader. They love him. So to kind of 
get a perspective on him from Charlotte, who we're used to being in her head. We can kind of take what she says at face value. We kind of know what she's saying about people in general and like her surroundings. We know how she describes things. But also, you're talking about a girl who grew up with Jack Mallory as her brother. So for her to be impressed by Cullen really says something about the level of, like she says, charisma that he oozes. It's just something in the air around him that you step back and you take note of this person because they just have that magnetic quality about them. One thing that I absolutely love about the fact that Cullen is here in this story, not only is that he's helping Bram to represent Jack within the trial and that we really see how they bounce ideas off of each other. One of my favorite scenes of the entire book, and and honestly, maybe the series, it's when they are standing in front of the door before their, I think it's the last day of trial, and they're debating, rebutting each other, and pointing out the weaknesses in each other's arguments, and preparing for cross-examination, re-cross-examination, all of that, thinking of every potential avenue and their defense for that, all of their plans being laid out, and you can see these two brilliant, absolutely brilliant minds at work, and you can really see how they've built a successful law practice, but also why they're such good friends, because they stimulate each other on an intelligent level. They are each other's equal in that way, that they may see something from a different perspective and be able to point out the weaknesses, but they can also look at something from outside and see all the holes in it and how to manipulate things in order to win the argument. It's really cool to kind of see them work together and it just really tickled me that I got to see something like that. Aside from all of that, because I really, really do love it. We get a couple of chapters from Cullen's perspective in this book later on, and we really start to see his thought process and how he is absorbing what he's watching between Bram and Charlotte as a person who has been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, as my friend Angela would say. So he himself has been in the brooch web, and he knows what it's like to feel that irresistible pull to your soulmate. I think it's kind of a novel experience for him him to see Bram try to maneuver that minefield and to see Charlotte. They're still trying to fight against it a little bit, but they're so deeply in love with each other that it's impossible to resist. There's no way at this point they're done for. They're totally in love. Seeing Bram and Charlotte together reminds Cullen of Kit and makes him long for her and their family, so much so that he almost can't watch them together. It says, Bram tucked Charlotte into his arm. She lifted her face and they gazed into each other's eyes. Cullen was so touched by the love he saw there, he glanced away, not wanting to intrude. But it's also the fact that he kind of misses that connection that he also has with his wife. I talked about it a little bit, but seeing that connection drawn there, there's definitely a parallel between Kit and Cullen and Bram and Charlotte, but there's also an extreme parallel between Charlotte and Kit. I definitely think that that similarity is one of the reasons that Bram is so drawn to Charlotte in the first place. And I definitely think that's what draws Cullen to Charlotte is he has such a fondness for Kit and Charlotte reminds him a lot of his wife. And so he immediately has a soft spot for her. Like right off the bat, she's fiery. She's a modern woman. She's independent. She knows about medicine and she loves Bram. All of those things, those are all winning qualities in Cullen's book. And I think for so long, like he's been, 
been blissfully happy with Kit out in California with his law practice and their winery. And for so long, I think he has wanted that for Bram. He's wanted Bram to find someone that he can love unconditionally and that loves him in return and kind of completes him in that way. And so to see Charlotte be able to give that to Bram, it makes Cullen so happy. But he also knows for this to work, one of them is going to have to sacrifice something. One of them is going to have to agree to live in the other's time. He's wondering if Charlotte is willing to make that sacrifice, but he's not going to judge her for not being willing to make that sacrifice because I think he sees how much it cost Kit. And that's talking about someone who was born to live in that time and whose family lived in that time. And she wasn't giving up as much as Charlotte would be giving up. It's kind of interesting to analyze that and break it apart a little bit and see that Cullen just gives Charlotte these little looks, these smiles and these smirks. And she catches him watching her a lot. I think he's really an observer of people. He's trying to figure her out, understand what Bram sees in her and if this is really going to be something that is going to work for them. So that at the end of the day, when Bram does decide to go back to Charlotte, it's not that much of a surprise to him because he knows what that pull feels like. And I think that as time passes... And Bram resists more and more and more. It's just like the tension on a rubber band. And it's either going to snap or it's going to spring back, like one or the other. So Bram feels that pull to go to Charlotte. And at that point, it's been four freaking years, right? So it really confused me at first whenever Cullen put up so much of, of a fight about Bram going back to Charlotte. I kind of asked Catherine about it because I wasn't really sure how to take that. Like, is Cullen just being pessimistic? Is he scared? Is he trying to be a realist? Like, what's happening here? And she told me, she's like, it's pretty straightforward in the fact that he just doesn't want to lose his friend. That's really what it is. I mean, yeah, he wants to make sure that Bram is making the right decision. And he doesn't want Bram to give up his entire life on the vague hope, like the off chance that Charlotte didn't end up marrying David and has a house full of kids. The last thing that Cullen would want is for Bram to give up his supposedly perfect life that he has. He's a United States senator for the state of California. He is being touted for the gubernatorial candidate in the the upcoming election. And the plan is to be in the White House within the next six years. He's got a beautiful woman who it looks like he's getting ready to propose to, but we find out, you know, trouble in paradise or it's not as perfect as it looks. Like she's very much the front person for this unsettled feeling that Bram has. Like he's got a mistress because he's not happy with his perfect candidate wife. He makes a comment. He says, I don't even know if she would like sex or would she just tolerate it because she wanted children. And so that's kind of, I mean, we know Bram. He's a very intensely sexual being, especially knowing how amazing his and Charlotte's sex is. Like I'm sure that having a wife who can't stand that is just like, oh, that might be a drawback. 
just a little bit. There's all kinds of red flags that we get just within these couple of chapters of Bram's life. Like he's clearly not happy, but honestly, I don't know how much of it is the brooches and how much of it is just him. I understand why he didn't go back with Charlotte and Jack though. He was struggling with a lot. And I think that we get the full measure of that in his book that he wrote, The Abyss of War. It's hard to kind of put PTSD into words without repeating yourself, I guess. It was really clever, I thought, for Catherine to have Bram write a book that kind of puts into perspective how he's coping with things, like what keeps him up at night. It allows us into his head in a way that we haven't been able to get to before. There were a couple of quotes Charlotte had tabbed in the book because even she says to Jack, like reading this book really made me understand what he was saying when he talked about how damaged he was, that he wasn't the person that he used to be and he needed to find his way back to that person before he could ever be the person that she needed him to be. A couple of those quotes, the first one says, I can't rid myself of the taste of gunmetal or rid my mind of the painful memories of the years I failed to live up to my ideals. And then the second one is, the war changed me profoundly. It touched everything and left nothing unchanged and left me a different person in every respect. There is now a great divide between who I was, who I am, and who I will become. God, such powerful words. So awesome. And to think about what that means for a character. You think you know Bram. You really do. And you think you have a good idea of what he's going through. But when you add it all up, there's something about his personality that's just like the way that he looks at the world, the way he's feeling in those final moments before he sends Charlotte and Jack back. What is it? This intangible thing that you can't quite wrap your head around. And you read this and you understand the weight of what he's carrying. It's a very heavy theme that pervades this entire book is the cost of war. What the sacrifice of your ideals does to you. How you make decisions that in a different situation you wouldn't even dream about, but you do it because you know if you don't make those decisions, somebody dies. You're weighing what's worse, I guess. Are you going to sacrifice your ideals and your sense of morality or are you going to let your best friend die? Are we going to cheat a little bit and win a game that the other side's already cheating at? (laughs) Or are we going to let Jack get hung? These kinds of decisions are things that Bram has had to make for four years now. And he's not the same man that he was when we met him in the Ruby Brooch. And yeah, there's 20 years of life experience on the other side of that. So naturally he's going to mature a little bit. But I think the majority of the change that we see in him between Ruby and Sapphire has happened in the last four years when he's been in the Union Army as an officer, as a special agent under assignment to the president, making all of these tough decisions, working as a spy. His narration says, Bram had never lied before he went to work for Lincoln and Stanton as a secret agent. He had withheld the truth, but he had never deliberately lied. During the past four years, he had perfected the art of not answering questions. It had saved his life more than once. He's sacrificing that moral code for survival. And so I think it was critical for him to return to California to get back into the mindset of who he was. He's always going to be scarred by his experiences in the war. 
but he can learn to heal a little bit and accept that side of him so that he's ready for Charlotte. And he starts to feel that pull, I think, to her only as he starts to come back to himself. Because he says to Cullen, I feel that pull more now than I did four years ago. It gets stronger with every passing day. And Kit says to him, if you're feeling that pull now, then you need to go. Like it's time for you to go. So I love that, that he, A, can talk to people about his experience, people that have been there. And B, we're kind of seeing that this is the signal that he's healing a little bit and that he's ready to take that next step in his life. On the flip side of things, it's been four years for Bram, which... And I know that that was a, a sore subject for a lot of people, like a lot of people. Catherine said if she could change one thing about the way that the story ended up with Sapphire, if she had understood how the brooches worked ahead of time, she would have made Bram come back sooner, like less than four years in his timeline, which I can see the pros and cons of that decision because a lot of people didn't like that, that they waited that long. And I get it. I get both sides of it, I guess. But regardless of how long it would have been for Bram, it still could have been three years for Charlotte. So I don't know that it necessarily would have fixed everything that like all the problems that people are upset about for Bram to come back when he did. And that was all simply because of how it all ended with Lincoln running towards him and going, Daddy, which was so cute. It was so cute. (laughs) I loved it. And it was such a satisfying moment for us to see that Bram has this completion in his life now after so long. Charlotte, too, of having felt like they were missing something. They had this hole in their lives where the other person was meant to be and that by coming together with their son, they're this family unit now. And it was so cute. So in the intervening three years on Charlotte's side of the timeline, things are kind of crazy. We find out that Charlotte is pregnant. It kind of jumps ahead several months later. And then uh, Charlotte's in labor with her little baby boy. I really actually did like that portion of it because she didn't think that she could get pregnant without medical intervention. And she had this big long list of requirements for whatever man she was going to choose And that Bram ended up having everything that she wanted and more in a life partner, but that it just wasn't the right time for them. But they ended up conceiving a child anyway. And it tugs in my heartstring reading stories like that to where like you don't ever think that you're going to get where you're going and that life kind of has a way of working out. I saw a quote the other day. It was like, just think five years ago, you dreamed about where you would be now. Yeah, I read that with a tinge of bitterness because I was like, I don't know if that's true for me personally. But for some people it is. And I thought particularly about this story whenever I read that. But honestly, yeah, it sucks that Charlotte had to wait three years for Bram. But the tragic part of that timeline is David. He is such a sweetheart. And I think... I'm going to praise Catherine here because I think one of the things that she does so flipping well is developing our next male lead in the previous story or female lead, whatever we will, but particularly the male leads just because that's kind of like the pattern of how these books devolve, which is one thing that I'm excited about for Moonstone because the main character 
from the clan is actually a woman, which is the first one that we get since Charlotte. So um, I'm excited about that. But one thing that she does really well is developing your protagonist for the next book in the series in the previous book. And she gets you invested in them as characters so that you really are ready for them to find happiness when you get along to their story. And I think that that is 100% true of David. Like I liked David after the last McLennan, but you don't really know a lot about him at that point. And it's hard to kind of just throw all your eggs in that basket, I guess, and really heartily be like, yes, let's do this. I'm ready for his love story. I don't know if David's story had been next in line, if I would have felt the urge to kind of pick it up and buzz through it like I did with the sapphire brooch. But after the sapphire brooch, I was really ready for David to find his person. That all comes down to character building. And we learned so much about him. Like he doesn't show his emotions. He's kind of closed off. He's very professional. He maintains this facade of calm. We don't really see the emotions that are boiling underneath with him a lot. To kind of see that other side of David and see his tenderness with Charlotte, I was honestly kind kind of surprised at how tender he was with her. That really started when she went to McLenna farm and asked Elliot and Meredith for help when Jack went back and got arrested and all of that. The first time that I was like, oh my God, I love this guy is when they're standing out by the paddock and they're watching Stormy and David makes a comment and Charlotte laughs. And then she just cuts herself off. David looks at her and says, it's okay to laugh, Charlie. Just because you are allowing yourself to have a lighthearted moment doesn't mean you don't love your brother. And I really started to understand that some of the things that David has gone through in his young life, like he's probably early 30s, maybe 30 at this point, he has gone through a lot of shit in his life. And he's seen a lot of stuff that he can't unsee. And he's experienced a lot of things that have impacted him on a really deep level. Those are things that he still struggles with. But I think that's what makes him so perfect for Charlotte at this point in her life because he's further along in his healing process than Bram is. And he's at a place where he can help Charlotte to kind of recover from some of the wounds that she suffered physically and emotionally after the events of her time travel experience to kind of see him show that vulnerability to her and use that as a tool to help her through was really a moment in this story where that character spoke to me and I was all in on David. Having characters like that who when you first meet them you're not really sure how to take them and they're kind of just background noise and then to kind of see the evolution of that character into somebody that you can really root for it makes all the difference. Having that kind of connection is fantastic and then to see how that kind of character helps another character that you love to heal and to kind of make the most of this new life that she has in front of her is really great. So there are a couple of things about David that are kind of set forth in stone. It's like the Ten Commandments of David. (laughs) And a couple of them, he's extremely resourceful. He can literally accomplish the impossible, which we all love. Meredith has a saying, David can accomplish 
accomplish most things with one hand tied behind his back, but miracles take a wee bit longer. Everyone is so confident in his abilities and seeing his growth within the clan as the series progresses is extremely satisfying because of where he starts out in the story. He can make the impossible possible. Absolutely. (laughs) And he's loyal. And I think that's true of all the clan members with maybe a few key exceptions. Like there are some people that are a little more selfish than others. But as a general rule, most of the clan members are extremely loyal, especially to their family. When David looks at Charlotte and uh, sees how upset she is, he says, where would you like to start your ass kicking? (laughs) You just know he is down for whatever. All she has to do is point and he'll shoot, basically. (laughs) He's friend zoned. And that's what sucks because you can see how much he is in love with her. And even Bram can see it. Like it sticks in Bram's craw that David is so in love with Charlotte. And Charlotte is very, very fond of David. Bram can see that if he kind of takes a step back, that's probably the natural course of things is for David and Charlotte to have ended up together if Bram hadn't been in the picture. To kind of think about that is really weird knowing where this story ends up. But even Charlotte says, if Bram didn't already have her heart, she could see herself giving it to this man. He's such a sweetheart. I'm sorry, but any man that can step in to huge shoes like Bram, take over, help Charlotte through her entire pregnancy and the birth of her baby, he ends up being Lincoln's godfather and he really just loves that kid with such a strong affection. When Charlotte asks why he touches her belly, why he talks to the baby, this is Charlotte's narration of it, says, even before David had belly mapped the baby, whenever he was with her, he had caressed her stomach. She had asked him why, and he shrugged, saying he owed Bram for saving Jack's life, and he wanted Bram's child as he grew to feel the warmth of a man's love and hear the burr of his Scottish accent. Reading stuff like that, I mean, I think any woman that can see that nurturing side of a man is just literally like putty in your hand. (laughs) Doesn't have a hope in hell of withstanding that kind of sweetness. I'm sorry. How on earth did Charlotte resist that? (laughs) I mean, that just shows you, I guess, how strong of the love between Charlotte and Bram is because David did everything right. Everything he possibly could. But it's like Elliot said, after Lincoln was born, David knew it wasn't going to happen. And he kind of came to terms with that and learned to be okay with it. But I also love that when Charlotte is explaining the relationship between her and David, it's key to note that he was always there for her, but never asked more of her than she could give. I loved that line because that really said a lot about his awareness of her and where she was throughout this entire pregnancy, this whole nine months or however long it was. That really kind of touches on his self-sacrificing personality and I think prepares us a lot for what we read in Emerald with him as well to kind of see that. But the final thing that I want to mention about David, because I know I mentioned earlier that he 
he was in a better place to help Charlotte heal than Bram was. And I think the best example of that was what Charlotte tells Jack when she says, the day we got back from Washington, David undid my hair and kept doing it until I stopped wearing it pulled back. He knew what happened in the past would haunt me for the rest of my life if I didn't let my hair down, relax, and stop worrying. He's been there and he knows what it's like and he can reach out to Charlotte and kind of touch her when she's in her darkest moment and kind of pull her back into the light and say, it's going to be okay. You just need to decompress, take a deep breath, find what makes you happy. Find those moments of light in your life and dwell in that light. A couple of you have said, poor David, I feel so bad for David. And I really do. I think I feel just as bad for David in this instance as I did for Elliot when Kit left in the ruby brooch because there's something about seeing these inherently good people just going through the worst shit and you feel so awful for them. But at the same time, when they finally get their happy ending, it makes it so much more rewarding. So I understand wholeheartedly why Catherine chooses that approach with her stories because it gets you invested. So a couple of creative choices before we part ways for today. There's an instance of symbolism in this book that is kind of a through line that I noticed whenever I was reading this time. And it's the mention of the stars. Bram mentions the stars. Charlotte mentions the stars. And anytime that those stars are mentioned, it's kind of at a dark point in their lives. These are just three instances with Charlotte, just to kind of give you a feel for it. But I believe that Bram mentions seeing the stars when he's in Castle Thunder as well. After Charlotte returns the second time without Bram, before Jack goes back and all the craziness ensues, there's this quote. It says, she withdrew to a place where she could control what was happening to her by refusing to think or feel. Grief, as she discovered as a teenager, was not easy to live with. That kind of gives you an idea of where she's at in her head. Her heart is broken. She can't sleep. So she finds herself sleeping more towards the day. But at night, all she wants to do is sit out on her porch and watch the stars. And I think that the stars are something that she associates with Bram, but also with that level of hope and optimism that she has. That was kind of the first mention, but then in pretty quick succession over the next hundred pages or so, it's mentioned a couple of more times. So the second time was when she's trapped in the cellar with the rats, and she mentions seeing stars in the darkness of the cellar, and that harkens back to her insomnia when she returned to the future and was grieving for Bram. Remember how we were talking about how Jack uses his ability to meditate as an escape from being in the hood, like isolated in darkness with sensory deprivation. That's kind of how Charlotte uses the stars. She sees the stars kind of projected into her darkness and appreciates their beauty and uses it as an escape for all the bad things that are happening in her life. By the third time that it's mentioned, so we get the rule of three here a little bit, it's at the end of part three when Bram and Charlotte are parting. They had just made love for the last time and it's this 
this quote. She looked away and breathed in and out slowly to keep her composure because looking into his eyes was like looking into the night sky and watching the stars burn out one by one until only infinite darkness remained. This is the grief that she's opening herself up to again. Only this time it's in front of her like a cavernous black hole because she knows that this is the last time that she's going to see Bram. And up until this point, she's used their love as this beacon of hope for herself that the stars symbolize. And so whenever she's parting from him for the last time after having begged him to come with her and him having begged her to stay, that's it. Saying goodbye to him is like watching the stars burn out one by one. I really thought that that was a very beautiful through line for that second half of the book. And the other cool little creative choice that we get throughout this book is the idea of home. We see Mallory Plantation. We see, you know, the little house that Charlotte in her parallel timeline grows up in with her parents. We see Bram's idea of longing for the winery and then looking at his houses in D.C. and how they felt more like a home with Charlotte and that he could kind of see himself building a family with Charlotte at that Georgetown house. And then we get the relationships between each other and how Charlotte and Bram are home for each other. Jack and Charlotte are home for each other. So we get these safe spaces location-wise, but we also get the safe spaces that they find in each other. The idea of home and safe space and shelter are very prevalent in this book. And one thing that I thought was clever that I didn't really put two and two together on until my conversation with Catherine a few weeks ago was how when Bram designs his Georgetown house, he builds this library, which is kind of attached to his bedroom or whatever. But when he's showing Charlotte around for the first time, he's so proud of it. He's like, I want to show you something. And he shows her the library and she just kind of gets this feeling that this this is where Bram goes to escape from it all. Like this is his safe space or his sanctuary, as Claudine says. And she says as much to him. And he says he doesn't allow the war inside. And I really think that that is a metaphor for how he sees his relationship with Charlotte. She is his library. When he loses that and vice versa, when they lose that relationship together, it's harder and harder for them to kind of make the world make sense. I thought that 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 was really cool that we are drawing that connection between Bram having this library that he found sanctuary in before he met Charlotte and then all of a sudden Charlotte becomes that safe space for him. And to wrap this all up with a very cool little connection that I saw throughout the Brooch series, whenever the fog envelops people and they are whisked off to a different time, it's often the fog is described as being stinky, smelly, like peat, like dirt earth, musk, you know, kind of like negative connotations if you want to go that far. At the very beginning, in the first chapter, when Bram is kind of off his head a little bit and almost dead, and Charlotte takes him to the 21st century before we know what's happening, and it's from his POV, he says the autumn scent of burnished gold leaves and fermenting grapes is what he smelled. 
in the fog to kind of turn that all around. And at the end of this book, when Bram is trying to convince Charlotte to come back to the winery with him, he's talking about how beautiful it is. It says, the land smells fresh with the aroma of fermenting wine. You wake up before sunrise when the air is cool and crisp and the scent of wine hits your face. It's the most beautiful and exciting place I've ever been. And so to get those two descriptions side by side, you really start to understand that that fog scent for him is something that he was associating with his home, his safe space. So that's kind of what draws the connection back to Charlotte being his safe space now. When he smells the the autumn leaves and fermenting grapes in the fog, that's the soulmate brooch lore bringing him back into the fold and like creating and forging that connection between him and Charlotte. So I thought that that was really cool, very creative, and I wanted to make sure to mention it to you guys before we parted ways for today. Yeah, I guess I'll see what you guys have to say. Any parting words that you guys have before we close out on the sapphire brooch? Angela said, he showed some foresight with the tracking device. What did you think of him doing that without her knowledge? Oh, David. I'm so torn. I do agree with why he did it because I think if she had known that there was that extra layer of security there, she probably would have acted with a bit more reckless abandon. I think that's the last thing that they all needed was to have worry about Charlotte going off half cocked, as David put it. So I understand why he did it. Do I think that it was morally ambiguous? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> like, I can see why somebody would be upset about it. And I was kind of surprised that she wasn't upset about it. But given the fact that it saved her ass, I kind of guess I get it. I don't know. What did you guys think about it? Lori says, it's important that this happens for David, though, because it humanizes his character so much. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like I said, if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't have felt the draw to his character. Like, I wouldn't have been invested in his love story like I was. So I think it's very, very well done how she attaches the readers to the next protagonist in line, I guess, before she starts their story. It really creates this sense of reader loyalty. It's very hard to motivate yourself to read a book if you don't care about the characters. So I think it's very well done, to be honest. Connie says, I didn't reread this book before this, but I want to go back now for sure. Definitely one of my favorites of the series. Yeah, it's a great book. This was really the beginning of seeing all of the stories start to roll into each other. Things start to get more entangled from here. And the clan really starts to form these relationships, these friendships. The plots start to get entangled a little bit with how people are meeting each other and the relationships that are forming. Books one and two, it's easy to see the one-off of it all. But for sure, once you get into the sapphire... I I think you're hooked. Alrighty, guys, it has been a pleasure talking to you today about the Sapphire Brooch. I've got trick-or-treaters coming, so I'm going to peace out for the day. I hope you enjoyed this little ditty of mine. So, if you're an Outlander fan, November 12th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Angela and I are going to be here on TSF Snacks talking about Season 7 and everything we hope to see, all the news that we have so far about casting, 
location choices, what plot points we think we're going to see, and what they have filmed so far, just different stuff like that. So very excited to discuss. Hope you guys will join us here. And then I think I've got a couple of one-offs that I'm doing, um, just random episodes that won't be live, but they'll be uploaded as podcasts. And then I'll be back for more with the Emerald Brooch in the first couple of weekends in December. So I'll make sure to post those events here in a couple of weeks so that you guys can RSVP and I can put any special historical details in there as I do my research along with my reread. Hope to see you guys with all of these lives coming up. We're going to get through Droughtlander, I promise. And hopefully we'll get some Outlander news here soon. Happy Halloween, everybody. And I will chat at you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.